Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. In the year 629 AD, the Roman Emperor Heraclius restored the True Cross to Jerusalem in one of the greatest ceremonies in the history of the Roman Empire. Heraclius, having defeated the Persians, now took for himself the title King of Kings. He also gave himself the Greek word Basileus, which means sovereign or king. In some ways, Rome seemed to have never glittered so brightly But Tom Holland, you could say that this is pretty much the moment (laughs) when the Roman Empire is going to end. Because last time on The Rest is History, we started talking about when the Roman Empire ended. And you could say, couldn't you, that Heraclius is the last Roman emperor? Do you think? Um, You could. I think it would be wrong. Uh, But you're right that it's um, the the reign of Heraclius is um, it's it's a reign that is both glorious and prostratingly disastrous yeah. it's it's the biggest game of two halves that uh, that you can come, come across well, not it's just kind of a game in roman of, history that, is, it, is or, it not a game of three halves i mean he does he <laughs> well he, he loses to the persians he beats the persians and then yes. the arabs basically wipe the floor with him i suppose that's true so yes. so what we were doing for those people who didn't listen to our last episode i mean first of all listen to the last episode because what we've been doing is we've been talking about when the roman empire fell so we've gone through a series of dates um you may remember we talked about the edict of thessalonica in 380 we talked about the death of theodosius the great in 495 we talked about the famous date in 476 where tom i think fairly comprehensively proved that the roman empire did not fall um and now we've moved on so the eastern roman empire i mean they don't call themselves the eastern roman empire they just call themselves the roman empire they're still going very strong uh they've lost a war to the persians or they've, the Persians have basically hammered them, but then Heraclius has carried the fight to the Persians. He has this tremendous sort of triumph and stuff. Then the Arabs come out of famously out of the deserts, or do we, they? Yeah, but well, under we the, exactly. This check very, out our episode on Muhammad for that. Exactly under the banners of Islam, or, or maybe they don't. Or but, do they? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, and there's a, this is the point, Tom. Now, when I studied this as a student. Um, this was sort of the point where all the textbooks said, you know, something changes here. This really is a punctuation point because the, there has been a, a, ter- a series of kind of terrible climactic events in the 6th century. There has been a general economic crash. There's been a plague, an absolutely devastating pandemic. On top of this, you have the rise of Islam. And at the end of all this sort of swirl, the Roman Empire is very very different it's a different kind of society different civilization they you know greek has taken prominence over latin christianity has driven out the kind of roman civil religion of the past so so is that all true do you think or do you think that's overstated no i think it's a it's an absolute rupture point um oh so, i thought so, you were gonna argue the opposite no no, was, no no I've no set that no, up very badly all. no not at all i i, I agree i mean so uh, historians will often describe um the, the Roman Empire up until the coming of the Arabs as um, East Rome, as the East Roman Empire. 
and and then it becomes it's conventionally comes to be called Byzantium and you know they're artificial uh it's not what the Romans themselves would have called themselves but um I think it it does convey the the degree to which this is an absolutely radical break because the implications of the um Arab conquests is that Byzantium Constantinople loses its wealthiest provinces so it loses Syria it loses Egypt it will come to lose uh, North Africa. And it throws, um, and at the same time, it is also being battered by invasions through the Balkans. So it, it's absolutely staggering, really, that um, the Constantinople doesn't fall, that the empire kind of staggers on. Um, so large numbers of, of immigrants from the Balkans settle right the way down into the Peloponnese in Greece. Yeah. Um, the, the frontier with, with what becomes Islam uh, the Tauros Mountains in uh, in what's now southeastern Turkey. I mean, very very bloody. Constantinople itself just about survives two very very menacing sieges by the Arabs, which uh, among is one of the kind of inspirations for Tolkien's portrayal of the siege of Minas Tirith. That's the kind of the, the measure of how close Constantinople comes to falling. Um, the emperor's holdings in Italy and Sicily come under constant threat, kind of fragment and and, and uh, large chunks of it dissolve away. So it, essentially, it's it's very much on its uppers. Yeah. Um, and it's able to claw its way back until in the 10th and 11th century, it's it successfully reestablished itself absolutely as a kind of major, major regional power. And Constantinople by that point has become, um, you know, very, very wealthy again. And it's absolutely a Roman empire. They still see themselves as the heirs of, of the line of the Roman emperors. Um, the measure of that is that with Charlemagne, we'll probably come to, to Charlemagne. Um, people in the Latin West claim that, that the Western empire has been restored and the Romans in the East, the Byzantines are furious about this, very, very upset about it. So the name of Roman still matters to them yeah. very, very deeply. What has changed, however, is that, you know, as you said, a sense of the kind of organic continuity has gone so that when people in the 10th, 11th, the 12th century in Byzantium, in Constantinople, look at the um, the statues of emperors set up in the 4th century or the 5th century or the 6th century or friezes, they don't know what they are. They can't remember them. Often they assume that these are statues of demons or uh, portrayals of the world that is to come. Um, but what they still very much have is, and this is also true of, of, um, of people in the West is that Rome's empire is eternal, that their empire is eternal, that it has a key role to play in the apocalyptic drama that Christians believe is, is destined to happen. But they think it's eternal though, Tom, do they, because it's Christian rather than because it's Roman. That's a slight yes. difference, isn't it? I, now, I know that in the previous episode, we talked about how um, some theologians and obviously emperors and so on had, had had kind of entangled the two, the idea that Rome was the essential vehicle for Christianity. But am I right in thinking in this sort of later medieval period, people who think that Rome is eternal think it's eternal purely because it's Christian rather than I mean, they don't care about Cato and, and Octavian. No, and... The, no, absolutely. They're not interested. They're not interested in Augustus or Trajan. They are interested, 
you know, the, the scholars are interested in Constantine or Theodosius or Justinian. Most people have don't even remember them. And they, so that these are the people for whom these statues are are kind of potentially necromantic figures. But um, there, there, are, there, there are prophecies in which it is the, the dignity of Rome that it will essentially, you can't have the end of the world without Rome. So in the seventh century, when um, the Arabs are invading, when everything is going tits up, uh, the, you have this prophecy that supposedly had been written by a guy called Methodius three centuries previously. He was a, a saint and a martyr, supposedly, um, in which he says that at the end of days, um, the world will be invaded by Gog and Magog, who are biblical kind of tribesmen who uh, lurk on the end of the or edges of the world. And this is obviously a representation of the Arabs, of the the, the Balkan tribes, um, the sense that you know, the civilized world is being overwhelmed by vast waves of barbarians from the outer limits of the world. So there's this sense that at the end of the days, Gog and Magog will invade. Um, the last Roman emperor will fight them and will hurl them back and will wall them up behind great gates of brass. And having done that, the last Roman emperor will then travel to Jerusalem and he'll arrive in Jerusalem. And when he does, suddenly seated on Temple Mount, so where the, where the Jewish temple had stood in Jerusalem, Antichrist will appear, enthroned in dark and terrible splendor like Sauron. And the last Roman emperor will then climb the hill of Golgotha. And when he does so, the, the cross on which Christ had been crucified will appear. The Roman emperor will kneel before it, will die. The cross will be raised up to heaven and the darkness of Antichrist will cover the whole world. But this will presage the last coming. Cool. And it's a kind of fantastical image of the future that has an unbelievable potency, both in in uh, in Constantinople and in the lands of the Latin West, because it 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 kind of restores to the Roman Empire what Augustine had taken away from it. Saint Augustine, who we talked about in the first episode, Augustine's take is that Roman Empire is nothing special; it doesn't matter; it can crumble away, unimportant. What matters is that the Church endures. But this kind of this myth of the last Roman emperor. It serves as a kind of lightning rod for those who want to believe that that the Roman Empire must survive because it has this kind of eternal destiny. Yeah. Okay. That's that's weird and fascinating. It is weird. Um, but I just <laughs> want. But I just want to rewind for a second to the seventh century. So to the to the to the that punctuation point we talked about. So I suppose the conventional date um, we didn't mention it, which was my folly is um august 636 which is the battle of the yarmouk which is when um the byzantine army lose to the to the arabs don't they i mean it's this absolutely mm-hmm. landmark kind of defeat now at that point in the seventh century tom in the west in the former roman provinces nobody at that stage thinks they're still living in the roman empire do they i mean they're very conscious that they're living in well, kingdoms sure. uh the pope does for instance so the pope in rome is is a subject of of the, the okay. emperor in Constantinople, but not in Gaul, uh, Ravenna. Or in Ravenna is no, not Spain in or no, no uh, certainly not in not. Britain. No, um, so so we've gone there. But obviously, the idea of Romanness and of Rome of the Roman Empire continuing that does endure, and it and it obviously endures in Constantinople. But as you said, it's different. So, for example, there's a historian who's published a, f- a couple of books in the last few years called Anthony Caldelis, I think his name is, or Caldelis, and he argues that there was a kind of roman nation state that a byzantine empire is basically a roman nation state everyone thinks of themselves as roman that the, you said they they call themselves R- romoi 
that they're not a kind of, he says, you know, they're not a sort of woolly multicultural empire. They are Roman and they're a nation. And that's how we should think of them. Is, do, you, do you buy that argument? I think that um, one, one of the, the way that um, Byzantium is able to survive is by forging a very coherent sense of a kind of embattled Christian people who have a, a key um, a key role to play in the in the, the great supernatural drama of the future, um, and whose city is the capital of the world. Uh, and if you want to call that a nation state, I mean, I think nation state is is would be an anachronistic way of framing yeah. it. But um, absolutely, it's that sense of kind of centralized identity that is is key to it. The, confu- the you know the confusion is that the outs that People in the West call them Greeks because they speak Greek. And if you want to call it a nation state, this will be, this is the model for Greece as it will emerge in the 19th century, the independent nation state of Greece. But of course, to them, they, they remain Romans. And they would, they use that, they use the word, even though they don't speak Latin. Yeah. They, and they don't see any contradiction between the fact they don't they speak Latin. They see none of that. And they don't no. live in Rome. <laughs> no, no, none at all. None at all. And this sense is influential not just on on um, on the Byzantines themselves, but on their neighbours. So I, I mentioned how they kind of claw their way back. They they are absolutely a regional superpower in the 10th and 11th centuries. Then you get, and we talked about this in the 12 Days of Christmas, the Battle of Munzerkert and the civil war that follows that. And that's disastrous because the the, the kind of the, the great recruiting ground for Byzantine armies was Asia Minor. Um, Anatolia, what's now Turkey, and it's now called Turkey because it's the Turks who win at the Battle of Manzikert, yeah. and they start kind of infiltrating, uh, taking advantage of the civil wars that follow Manzikert, uh, and increasingly kind of occupying it. Um, and you get this uh, Islamic Sultanate parking itself in the middle of what had been this Christian heartland, and it calls itself the Sultanate of Rome. Yeah. So, as in the Sultanate as in Rome. of Rome, yeah, yeah, the Sultanate of Rome. Um, and but they don't call themselves Romans, <laughs> do they? No, they, they 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 don't. But they they look to, to Constantinople as being a worthy capital of the world. And one of the one of the things that, that is really interesting is that for for the Muslims, they look back to sayings that are attributed to the Prophet, which derive from an age when Constantinople was the one great city that defied the Caliphate, defied. Um, defied the world of Islam. And so for the Muslims as well, Constantinople has a key role to play in this kind of apocalyptic imagery. So for them, there are sayings of Muhammad that says, Constantinople will be the first to fall, then Rome will fall. But the Romans are a people who will be fighting you till the end of days. Yeah. Um, and these are prophecies that kind of motivate, um, you know, in due course, you, you you have Manzikert, you have the, uh, the the Turks starting to move into um, in, 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 into Anatolia. Um, then in 1204, you have this calamitous intervention by the Crusaders when they capture Constantinople. From that point on, the Byzantine Empire has an absolute shadow of itself. And you start to get the Ottomans, who are, uh, again, a Turkic people who managed to cross the straits from Asia into Europe. And so increasingly, Constantinople comes to be surrounded and they are eyeing Constantinople up as a worthy capital of what will become their their sultanate in the long run, their caliphate. Yeah. Um, and when in 1453, which is the the traditional date for the end of the Byzantine Empire and therefore 
for the day, the, the end of the Roman Empire. When that happens, Mehmet II, the Ottoman um, Sultan who captures Constantinople, um, his mother is Greek. He is aware of these kind of traditions. And in the great portrait that is made of him by Bellini, there are three crowns in the high corner. And these symbolize the three continents that, that Mehmet II uh, is ruling. And he does have a consciousness of himself as the heir of the Roman Empire. But the heir of the uh, Roman Empire, the Christian Roman Empire. No, so yeah, so all gone, all gone. Yeah. So in that sense, 1453, again, is a very, you know, I mean, that is the terminus. I don't think it's the complete terminus. Before we get back to 1453, I just want to dig into a previous date you mentioned, which is 1204. Because 1204 occurred to me as quite a nice contender for this crown. Because that's the point at which, isn't it? It's absolutely arguably one of the single most disgraceful episodes in european history mm-hmm. the crusaders basically yeah. you know completely breaking their promises and stuff and sacking constantinople kicking out now that's a, a huge punctuation point because that's the i mean the romans have had two capitals in their long history in rome and in constantinople they've now lost both of them because the crusaders take charge in constantinople um the the remaining romans as they are called as they would have called themselves they basically go off to to Trebizond, Greece. To, they sort of scatter, yeah. don't they? Um, yeah. But then they get they do get it back. But the the after they get Constantinople back, the game is kind of up. It's it? a spectral thing. Yeah, it's yeah, they're it's sort a of ghostly sp- presence. So, yeah. do you think twelve oh four would be a good uh, uh, is, is a good no? Because because as you said, they do manage to, to claw it back. Uh, okay. And so there is uh, you know, and they uh, you know there are that there, there is the, the continuous line of emperors is preserved. There is, there's not a fracture point. There's not a break. Okay. Um, and so when they recapture Constantinople from the Latin occupiers, um, they're they're simply restoring a capital to an empire that they felt had had continued. I think that 1453, when Constantinople falls, is is the obvious terminus, but it's not conclusively the terminus because there is one last holdout. Which is Trebizond, which is okay. uh, on on the Black Sea, which falls in um, uh, in um, fourteen sixty one, and I think if you wanted to be strictly accurate, that would be the date that you would give. So just as you, um, it's not when Romulus Augustulus gets deposed that you have the last emperor in the East. It's when Julius Nepos in four eighty gets deposed. So likewise, fourteen fifty three. Although it's the obvious obvious date, it's actually fourteen sixty one. But the fall of Trebizond is obviously that much less dramatic yeah and i think that that is then the roman empire is dead well i was going to say in the world's imagination tom does 1453 loom that large at the time do people sort of say yes gosh absolutely. the roman empire has come to an end completely yes it's a terrible terrible shock a terrible shock it, it reverberates throughout christendom one of the measures of that is that um uh, a romance is written tyron leblanc i think in catalonia a, a couple of year, a few years after the fall of Constantinople, in which the shock is so great that they recapture it, and it's a kind of counterfactual, right? In which the Roman Empire carries on, yeah. Um, and I think it's yes, I think it's an absolutely devastating moment. But the Roman Empire that people think has fallen, so we're in the age of kind of very much still the age of Christendom. The the, the empire that they're mourning. They're mourning the empire of Constantine, aren't they? Rather than the empire of Augustus and Hadrian and Claudius and yeah, they're they're mourning the great bulwark, the great Christian bulwark against Islam. It's not that they they don't think that what has fallen is the empire of that was set up by Augustus. 
or do they? I think some scholars do. Yeah, some scholars do. But I think it's the the fame of Constantinople is very, very great. And I think there is a sense that something, you know, very ancient has 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 gone. Yeah. Has gone or has it gone, Tom? Because don't or you have uh, a whole theory about undead Rome and <laughs> zombies, and, um, which I've been well, greatly looking forward to, the sort of walking dead of uh, Roman yes. history? Well, I mean, because the truth is that there have been many attempts to dig the corpse of the Roman Empire out of its grave and to reanimate it. Yeah, you haven't talked about so the I Holy think, Roman Empire at all. Yeah. So I think we should we should have a look at those attempts in the in the second half. Excellent. And maybe decide which is the most uh, the most convincing. I look forward to it. Okay, see you after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Tom Holland has spent the break vigorously digging up the corpse, the rotting <laughs> corpse of the of the Roman Empire, and he's about to present us with a series of zombie figures. Um, so we did promise that we would talk a little bit about the Holy Roman Empire, Tom, and that's the empire of Charlemagne, who you mentioned earlier, but we never really got into. So tell us a little bit about this and, well, tell us about why this is or isn't the Roman Empire. Right. So... Um, when the Roman Empire in the West falls, left hanging is the possibility that perhaps it might be revived. Um, and the Byzantine emperors themselves, as as we said in the first uh, episode, you know, they do pander to uh, the kind of various barbarian warlords and kings who've taken over chunks of former Roman provinces by kind of handing them out titles and imperial robes and all that kind of stuff. So it, kind, it is hanging in the air. Um, 
we d- we did an episode on this uh, actually the first of our 12 days of christmas wasn't it so if you're interested in in more on this do check that out but very briefly charlemagne um frankish king becomes sufficiently powerful that um he can legitimately as he sees it be crowned as as emperor actually in rome so the first emperor to be crowned in rome since julius nepos the the, la- the the previous emperor of the west um and one of the reasons why uh, this happens, or in fact, the key reason why this happens is that the Pope in Rome, so the, the most significant figure in the Latin church, uh, had previously looked to Constantinople for protection. Uh, and the emperor in Byzantium is no longer able to do that. So the Pope is looking to uh, to essentially to kind of big up Charlemagne so that he'll be in a position to do what the Pope thinks emperors should do, which is to look after popes. Right. Um, you know, this becomes one of the kind of great dynamos of medieval history, what the relationship of, of the emperor and the pope should be, um, who should have primacy, um, is the argument that uh, the emperor has a key role in in the history of the apocalypse, you know, the last Roman emperor, that kind of figure, you know, does that, it, it, does that in other words, is, is the figure of the emperor the key one? Or do you go with the kind of more, the, the approach argued by Augustine that, um, the Roman Empire in itself and of itself is not particularly significant. What matters is the church and that therefore the empire should be subordinate to the church. And there's heated debate. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's put it that way. Let's not get into it. I mean, we'll never get out of that rubber hole if we go down there, Tom. I know yeah. once you get into Canossa, there's no, no, there's no return into that. from that. But essentially the Holy Roman Empire, I mean, people, the, the Voltaire's joke is that it's neither holy nor Roman nor, nor an empire. Uh, it, it is actually holy. I mean, right. if it weren't holy, it wouldn't, you know, that... It has a sacral quality, Dominic. Oh, very nice. Sacral quality. And, and, and I suppose you're now going to tell me that it is also Roman because the idea of Romanness matters so much to it, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I know exactly. they're Germans who who rule it, but but I suppose you would say, going back to the first podcast we did on this topic, that the Roman Empire was often ruled by, you know, as you said, barbarians. No, Novak Djokovic kind of types. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it is, it, but it's not an empire, the Holy Roman well, Empire. Well, it's an imperium. I mean, it claims power. So okay. I think in that sense, it is an empire. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. So Voltaire has been comprehensively, um, you know, has been beclowned. I by mean, well, let's say it's Romanish. Okay, very good. Um, An empire, so I suppose. It's, it's Romanish, empireish, and holyish. And, and you're going uh, but, to, but it's not the only, it's not the only kind of um, imperium that thinks itself a successor to the Romans, does it? I mean, the Ottomans, in a sense, think of themselves as successes. I think less so. I think, I think. Well, they're sit there. They're, they're surrounded by the monuments. Yes, but they change them, don't they? So they have Hagia Sophia, the great cathedral built by Justinian, but they convert it into a mosque. Right, but they don't turn. They don't tear it down. No, they don't. They convert it. Yeah. Um, and that the the cathedrals of Roman of of Roman, Roman Christian Constantinople are monuments that bear witness to the triumph of islam yes so yeah. it's you know rome is conquered yeah uh that's that's the point um it's subdued so in that sense it's not roman okay. and the the sense of being the heir of the roman empire fades pretty quickly in constantinople but there is another eastern power where the sense of continuity with um with rome and particularly with the second rome is very very strong and um it's a part of the world that we've been talking about quite a lot recently and that of course is uh, muscovy right is what becomes russia so it's that becomes russia. comes i mean you're right we have done quite a lot on this recently so for those of you who don't know 
the Vikings sailed down the the Volga and the Dnieper, these rivers in the eighth, ninth, tenth centuries. They basically kind of co-found Kiev. Um, they end up their their society ends up becoming well for coming into the orbit of Constantinople. They adopt Byzantine Orthodox Christianity, don't they? They do. And at what point, Tom, do they do these? Well, who is it that first talks about a third Rome? It's not, is it? Because Kiev isn't the third Rome, is it? It seems to be um, a, a Russian monk called Philoteus who, who writes in 1510. And he's writing to um, a, a prince called Vasily. And Vasily is the son of Ivan III of Moscovy, but crucially, is also the son of the niece of the last emperor of Constantinople, Constantine Palaeologus, who who died fighting the Turks. So, so it's not just an ideological link. There's a kind of blood link as well. There is absolutely a blood link, and of course, Vasily is is a um, a Russification of Basileus, who, as you mentioned, the Greek word for for emperor. Yeah. Um, so he, this monk Philotes, writes to Vasily. Let's you know Basileus, uh, the son of. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the niece of, of the last emperor of Constantinople, and he he says that two Romes have fallen. The third Rome, though, stands. Nor will there ever be a fourth. And he says that no one shall ever replace your Christian Sardom. He says this to to, to Vasily, um, and it's that idea that uh, you have a kind of um, translatio imperii. It's called the the movement of the capital of the empire, so from yeah. Rome to Constantinople, and now from Constantinople to Moscow, which kind of undergirds, I guess you could call it the conceit of the Tsars. And of course, the Tsar... I was about to say the name, know, the very name. The name itself kind of bears witness. So, um, you know, the irony is, obviously, uh, territory of Russia is as as far from Rome as, as you can get in Europe, really. <laughs> um and yet M- Moscow, probably more than any other European capital, you know, has has the kind of the bragging rights to the to to, to be the heir of Rome. Um, and this is this is something that is, I think, taken seriously. Uh, and again, to kind of touch on the theme of of last week's um, special that we did on Ukraine, we talked about Crimea. Yeah, um, Crimea matters. Because it is, it was it was the seat of classical Greek civilization. So you have the the city of Chersonus, um, founded by Greeks back in the sixth century BC. It had been a part of the Roman Empire under the under you know the the heyday of the Caesars in the first second centuries AD, and then in the tenth century, when Vladimir the, the the prince of Kiev, who again I think now has to rank as a friend of the show, he's yeah, been on so right. many recent episodes. He gets baptized. That's in Chersonesa. So. The sense of, of Crimea as the link joining um, the, 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 the lands of Muscovy to the north to the, the, the Roman world is very, very strong. And the measure of this is that in 1783, under Catherine the Great, as in the Great Hazar, um, Potemkin, you know, her advisor and her lover. Did you have to say that in that kind of Cluzo <laughs> accent? I mean, this has been a very accent-free podcast. It no, it's yeah. We, I I couldn't resist it. <laughs> no, uh, so Potemkin, yes. Potemkin, uh, who basically uh, supervises the annexation of Crimea under under Catherine the Great, he writes to uh, to Catherine, 
and says to her, you have attached the territories which Alexander and Pompey, so Alexander the Great, Pompey the Great, yeah. the great rival of Julius Caesar, just glanced at to the baton of Russia and Cherson of Tarida, so that's Chersonesus, the source of our Christianity and thus of our humanity is now in the hands of its daughter. So Russia is now joined to the first Rome in the form of these lands that Pompey the Great had, had ruled and to the second Rome, because now, you know, this is where uh, Vladimir became, was baptized, who married the daughter of the Byzantine emperor. So that is the sense in which the Tsars do take this seriously. Yeah. So you could argue, you know, that maybe a date for the end of the Roman Empire, if, if one buys into this Tsarist propaganda and, and accepts it, would be with the the execute you know the termination of the of of Tsarist Russia of the aptly named Romanov dynasty yes exactly <laughs> um, so 1917 1918 well that is exactly so that's interesting yeah. and just to go back to the Crimea so 1783 you said that Catherine the Great absorbs it so what's interesting about that Tom is that that is precisely the moment at which a group of very different people on the other side of the world are also kind of laying claim to Roman heritage which are the Americans Mm-hmm. So the sense of the American Republic being the heir to the Roman Republic, their sort of fascination with Cincinnatus and with these kind of great characters. But I suppose you would say, well, would you that the Russia is different from America and indeed from, let's say, France in that regard, because the Americans and the French are, are laying claim to the ideals of Rome and to the iconography mm-hmm. and stuff, but they don't genuinely think they're Romans. No, but I, the Russians, I think that is the difference. But there are some Russians you're saying who who genuinely think there is an absolutely organic, unbroken continuity, and that they are the genuine heirs because of orthodoxy, because of Kievan Rus and all that history, that they are the heirs to, that they, they are Romans. They're not the heirs to Rome. That's the wrong way of putting it, that they are the Romans. I mean, it has a quality of paradox because you look at Washington with all its, you know, the Capitol and the Senate and its Roman architecture, and you say, well, of course, it's a much more Roman city, but it, but it isn't because it doesn't have that sense of itself as being literally descended from Rome, as as having a kind of supernatural degree of continuity, which I think how seriously people have taken it over the course of history could be debated, but I think it does hang in the air as something that can be invoked at at certain stages, and perhaps the most fascinating witness for that is not actually with the Romanovs, but with Stalin. Yeah, because there are enduring stories, and I th- I think that they are mythical. But the very fact that they exist is in itself telling. That when the Nazis reach the outer limits of of Moscow, Stalin, who of course is a committed atheist, profoundly anti clerical, takes the most sacred icon and he puts it in a plane. It's an icon of the Virgin, and the plane then circles round the city limits of uh, Moscow. And in doing that, they're echoing what the Byzantines did when they were besieged by pagan enemies, that they would take the icon of the Virgin and carry it around the city walls. And it was said that the Virgin herself would appear, which in turn is an echo of stories told uh, by Athenians that the the Virgin goddess Athena would walk around the walls of, of Athens. So there is a kind of, you know, it's a very, very distant yeah. sense of, 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 of continuity, but a very, very faint sense. And I would say that um, there are people around Putin who do seem to be taking this seriously. Um, so it, it, in 2008, uh, there was a, um, the head of a monastery um, in Moscow who was the spiritual advisor to Putin's then wife, directed a film um, for Russian television 
that was about the fall of, of Constantinople. Um, and the, the, the blame for the fall of Constantinople was laid less on the Turks than on the Crusaders, who um, this, the, the head of this monastery, Father Tikon, Shevkunov, says that they are crude, ignorant, primitive, whose chief occupation was sacking and pillaging. And that is um, very much, you know, it's a commentary on um, well, he means the American, West, fund man- yeah. Yeah, American fund managers and asset strippers and all those kind of people. Um, so it's casting again Moscow as as the as as Constantinople and um, yeah as as kind of Western capitalists as as the Crusaders uh, and um, the Russian Foreign Minister in tw- in 2016 when of course Putin ordered the annexation of Crimea from Ukraine mm-hmm. I mean he 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 you know as Putin has been doing he gives this history lesson and he says that um, that that Russ was the successor to the Byzantine Empire. You know, he he he's saying this. So this is, you know, it's a Lavrov, isn't it? The yeah, it's who, okay, Lavrov. Who, um, I, I mean, you've written about this, haven't you? In, I'm reading your essay here. Uh, Rus bent under but was not broken by the heavy Mongolian yoke and managed to emerge from this dire trial as a single state, which was later regarded by both the West and the East as the successor to the Byzantine Empire that ceased to exist in 1453. I mean, Tom, Liz Trust doesn't write essays like this. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, and, you know, there were, there were famous images when the, when the Russian jets were taking off with the annexation of Crimea of priests casting it, you know, blessing them, putting holy water on it and so on, as priests would have done in Byzantium. And the, the, the parallel was very deliberate. It was kind of very conscious. So I think that, you know, it, it is, a, you know, we call this episode Undead, Rome, kind of zombie Rome, but I mean, there, there, there's a kind of sense in which it's it's not entirely dead. And I thought also the other, so so that's one way in which I think this kind of the, the ghost of Rome haunts geopolitics even into the 21st century. And the other the, the other one, which was very very striking while it was around, was the use that the Islamic State put the Roman Empire to when it was a, when it was kind of going strong because. Right. Um, you know, we we talked about how for for Muslims the idea of Rome is very important because you have these hadiths, these sayings attributed to Muhammad, in which um, it's it's said that Islam will conquer first Constantinople and and then Rome, which therefore means that Rome must still be going. That's that's <laughs> yeah. the kind of the logic, uh, and the, the 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 hadith that the Islamic State picked on was that the last hour will not come until the Romans land at Al Amakh or in Dabiq, and Dabiq is a small town in northern Syria. And they called their propaganda magazine Dabiq. So they put it out every kind of month, I think. Yeah. And one of, the, one, of the, um, one of those editions had on the front of it the, uh, the, the great obelisk that Caligula had bought to Rome that then got put up in the, um, the center of St. Peter's Square in the Vatican. And they showed this with the Islamic State flag flying from it. And... Um, they they had this uh, this kind of editorial where they said we will conquer your Rome, break your crosses, enslave your women by the permission of Allah the Exalted. This is His promise to us. He is glorified, and He does not fail in His promise. If we do not reach that time, then our children and grandchildren will reach it, and they will sell your sons as slaves at the slave market. Oh my God! So this was, um, you know, resuscitating this sense of the West as a Roman Empire and using it as a, a, a kind of motivation, and it's. It's not just, you know, this is not a perspective that's confined just to the ideologues of Islamic State, who are obviously the most brutal and uh, unpleasant of the lot. But there's also Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who's very, very 
significant Muslim scholar. He was chairman of the International Union of Muslim Scholars. He was a trustee of the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies. And he 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 took this um this hadith that Islam will conquer Constantinople and then Rome. And he said he says that Islam will come to Rome as a conqueror and a victor. Uh, and this is this is you know he's 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 taking this very very seriously. And Rome there means means what, Tom? Though literally Rome, it literally means Rome. So so there was, and you can see this from what an imam at at uh, um, one of the uh, the defense academies in Saudi Arabia said. That again, he's talking about this hadith. He says, "We will control the land of the Vatican. We will control Rome, and we will introduce Islam to it." So weirdly, yeah, the, the Roman Empire's greatest enemy, the Caliphate kind of keeps the ghost alive. So I was going to say, you know, Rome there is doing the fulfilling the function of Babylon and the we talked about Babylon and yes, Babylon. Absolutely. But it yes. but it isn't, it isn't, because when people talk about Babylon now, when I don't know, when Rastafarians talk about Babylon, I mean they're not literally talking about yeah, you're right. Babylon. Yes. Yeah. This has a different dimension, doesn't it? Which is yeah. you're right, it is the same dimension of of its luxury, its wealth, its its wickedness and corruption. But they also literally mean the city in Italy. It has a geopolitical dimension as well. Yes, yeah. they literally mean the city. And they literally mean that, uh, you know, for the Islamic State, the United States and its allies are Rome. And they're also crusaders. Yeah, and there's a sense in which these um, various enemies from Islam's history are, 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 are still kind of roaming around like, like the undead. Yeah. Roaming um, around, Tom. Very good. Roaming, roaming around. Very good. It's always good to get a pun in. <laughs> before before we finish, there's one last, perhaps, heir to the Roman Empire, which I think is an unexpected one, but quite a fun one. <laughs> go on, go on. And this is to go back to the Roman Empire in the West. So the question is, yeah, I, I, I'm sure you'll have the answer to this. What is the last territory of the Roman Empire in the West where people feel that they are Roman to succumb to barbarian invaders. Oh my word, Tom. Uh I'm going to say it is Sicily. No, you see I I think there's a very strong case for saying it's Northern Wales. <laughs> there speaks a man who's never been to Wales. <laughs> <laughs> so Britain notoriously is the first province yeah. in the West to slip Roman imperial control. Yeah. But um it's clear that there are people in Roman Britain who continue to feel that they are Roman. And um, among these are various princes who claim descent from um, an authentic Roman figure called Magnus Maximus. So he's a, the most he's a usurper, immodest name in. Yeah. What's his name mean? The great, the greatest. Great, the greatest. <laughs> great, the greatest. I think I might. That's Donald Trump's name, surely. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm amazed he hasn't picked up on that. Um, so he, yeah, so he's a usurper who uh, gathers together all the um all the various kind of uh, legions and 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 reserving uh, remaining garrisons and takes them to the continent where he briefly flourishes as a would-be emperor and then gets killed and that essentially is the end of roman centralized power in britain but what he's done is that he has endowed various kind of chiefs big men with uh, imperial authority so in that sense they are in, all these guys are endowed with uh you know they're, they're roman office holders and over the course of the centuries that follow, these lines of princes preserve a sense of themselves as, um, you know, as, as as licensed by by Rome, as Roman officials, and as descendants of of Magnus um, Maximus, whom they come to call Maxin Gledig, 
And Maxon Gledig is, and I apologize to any That's Welsh listeners, my Welsh. Welsh. Yeah, <laughs> Maxon Gledig. Uh, and he is the founder of the lines of all these various Welsh princes. Right. And he appears in the Mabinogion. He's, he's a kind of big figure to play with. He's the kind of ancestral head of, of all these various princes who, in the long run, Edward I will terminate. Oh, so Edward I is the hammer not just of the Scots, but of the, of the Romans. So you could say that Edward I is the kind of the last barbarian conqueror to subdue a region of the Western Empire that still feels itself but people, to be Roman. People but there's in... a further twist, John. There's a further twist. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1301, yeah. what, does Edward the, what does Edward I do with his son? Makes him Prince of Wales, Tom. I even I Makes know that. Makes him Prince of Wales because the Welsh supposedly have said, we want a prince. And so Edward makes his son Prince of Wales to restore the line that had been broken. That's line of descent from Maxon Gledig, Magnus Maximus, latter days of, of, of Roman Britain, and to say it is revived. So the Prince of Wales, in that sense, is the heir to the Roman Empire in the West, meaning you could argue <laughs> yeah. that the, la- the last person in public life with a line of descent... From the Roman Empire is none other than Charles. Prince, Prince Charles. Charles. Prince Charles, Prince of Wales. The last Roman. <laughs> I can, Russell, oh, that bombshell. Russell, well, Tom, I think that is an absolutely uh, ridiculous argument. <laughs> so when I, th- I, know, I mean, it's... when I think of people dining on, you know, stuffed thrushes on golden plates, watching gladiatorial games, I don't think of the people of Barmouth or, I mean, the people in, I don't know, <laughs> people in... La- I'm trying to think of Welsh places. Are people in Landudno in the 12th century calling themselves Romans? And surely they're not. Welsh listeners, please address your remarks to Tom Holland and tell him whether or not you feel Roman. <laughs> Prince Charles, if you're listening, do likewise. <laughs> well, Prince William as well. Will. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. So, Maybe they should have a sort of... Well, of course, you're great pals with Prince William, Tom. Yeah, um, yeah, you met him at that charity, do you? Both Aston Villa supporters, like David Cameron, yeah. Um, yeah. and maybe you should um, recommend that they have a kind of Roman investiture ceremony rather than. A- but I think it's exciting that you know that, that maybe the two the two figures with claims to be Roman are Vladimir Putin and Prince Charles, <laughs> two very different. The Emperor of the East, the Emperor of the West, right? Maybe we should, they should just carve up the world between them. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't put too much money on Prince Charles in that kind of mano a mano. No, no. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't send him no. into the conference chamber. To... <laughs> no. Right on that bombshell, as you rightly said. Um, I think we've completely. You know, it took Edward Gibbon twenty years, but it's taken us Done it in two hours, two, less than two hours. Uh, and Edward Gibbon did not end on a Welsh note, which I think is greatly to his discredit. <laughs> so we've got all kinds of treats coming up. Um, the assassination of JFK. Um, I can't remember what. Lethal fashion. Lethal fashion. Killer fashion. Um, and fashion. Oil. Uh, um, stuff about energy. union. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of stuff. Loads, loads of stuff. So thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.